the way that you dress cuts to the core of who you are. It cuts to the core of your identity. It has to do with how you see yourself. It has to do with how you present yourself to others. It has to do with the relationship to your body. It has to do with our connection to our sexuality, to the community that we want to associate with or maybe distance ourselves from. It's hard for me to think of many areas of halacha that carry so much weight and significance around them or that mean so much and are also so visual and so kind of in your face in terms of the way people think of you. So all of that definitely contributes to the struggle that many women have in this area. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In late December, I posted a short question on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. I mentioned that I was recording an episode about teaching snood or modesty, and I asked what people would like to hear addressed. I think that about 100 people commented in the first hour. Clearly, this is a topic that hits many raw nerves and which needs to be approached in an honest, respectful, and open manner. My question on Facebook was intentionally vague because different people see the issue of modesty through different lenses. Some wonder about how best to teach students and children about Sinut so that they'll be more inclined to follow the halachot and established Orthodox customs. Others ask questions from the opposite vantage point, wondering about whether Sinut is an inherently oppressive system that leads to an unhealthy body image, increases a sense of counterproductive shame, and completely ignores the need for self-expression. In a lot of ways, I felt that this was an episode bound to irritate listeners no matter how much we tried to talk about Sneut in a comprehensive manner. I think that's probably still the case. And that's why I'm especially gratified that my guest, Shana Goldberg, demonstrated real generosity by agreeing to take part in this difficult but important conversation. Among the topics we discussed are whether we need to redouble our efforts to emphasize that Sneut applies to men as well as to women why it seems that many women find Sinut more challenging and repressive than other aspects of Torah Judaism, what's a healthy way to teach Sinut without turning it into an obsession, to what degree societal factors influence our perception of what's considered modest behavior, the difficulty in that women are told to downplay their sexuality, whereas this very requirement sexualizes them, the fact that the laws of Sinut that women are told to follow were codified by men, the fact that we often use the yardstick of modesty to declare whether someone is religious, and more. We'll get to all that in just a moment. Before we begin that conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Shana Goldberg, the author of What Do You Really Want?, published by Magid Books in 2021, teaches in the Stella K. Abraham Beit Midrash for Women in Migdalos. She is AUS Atalacha, a contributing editor for Drachecha, womenemitzvot.org, and a frequent blogger for the Times of Israel. Shana Goldberg, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. First of all, I especially appreciate this simply because it is a very weighty subject and a subject which is, I'm not going to say fraught with danger, but I feel in some ways, Shana, that there's no way we can make everybody happy with a topic like this. This is something which a lot of people have a lot of issues with from both sides of the aisle. So again, thank you for joining me. I think it's important to at least acknowledge that you're doing something which is not easy for a lot of people. So thanks. I am so happy that you acknowledge that and put that right on the table from the Onset because I, I definitely feel heading into this conversation that it is a topic that's very sensitive and delicate and fraught with a lot of different emotions that people have. So just wanting to make sure that we uh, you know understand the weightiness of what we're discussing and hopefully do justice to the topic. Absolutely. And I want to emphasize that this episode of the podcast will really be confronting the issue from both sides, two contrasting ways, both from an educational perspective, discussing how we can strengthen a sense of snoot, and from the opposite approach, from the perspective of people who find it stifling, challenging, and offensive. So let's open up with a question just about the concept of snoot, Shana, because many people assume that a conversation like this is necessarily a conversation that's directed to girls and women. I know that people do give lip service and say snoot applies to men also, it applies to boys. But let's be honest, I think, frankly, lip service is about all that it gets. I don't think it really goes on beyond that. Certainly, when I've been in Yeshivot, both as a student and as an educator, it's not something we discuss in any extensive way. So do you think that this assumption or parts of this assumption are valid, that people really don't treat it with enough weightiness for men? And should this premise be challenged and say we really do need to involve men and boys in this conversation more? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I think in terms of the reality of what we see around us in Orthodox circles and communities, that's absolutely true, that the focus is by and large on women and on girls, and uh, not much is spoken about in terms of young men and their education in this area. And I think part of uh, why I'm so happy that we're doing this podcast and part of what I'd like to see in our community is an effort to really shift the conversation and the way that it's discussed. And when I think about that, you know, the first thing that I think about is that when we think about the word sniut and its origins, we know that it comes back to Pasuk and Micha, where the phrase is, that you should walk modestly with God. And there, it's definitely not speaking only to women. It's a Pasuk that's referring to men and women. And it's also not speaking about dress. And I think before we get to the mini, you know, the, the little tiny minor details about Sniyut that people tend to focus on more in attempt to kind of understand on a broader level what's going on in this pasuk and what is it trying to tell us is really helpful in shifting the conversation. So when I think about the pasuk, to walk modestly with your God, I think about what does it mean when we use the word modest? Right. Like that's a word that we use in modern English or in modern Hebrew, like we'll say, um, oh, that family, they live in a modest home 
or that guy, he's really like a modest guy. And what are people trying to get at when they say that? And I think what they mean, um, it's some kind of attempt to allow deeper internal things to be apparent and to be part of the focus instead of letting only the external means draw attention. So I'm not trying to say that the external doesn't matter. The external is so important. I don't want to deny it. I don't want to cover it up, but I want to find a way to integrate the internal and the external. So for example, if somebody says um, that family lives in a modest home, that doesn't mean that they don't have really nice furniture, maybe even expensive artwork on the walls. But when I walk into their home, I don't see, wow, in my face, you know, that artwork glaring at me or that furniture screaming at me. I see it in the context of the feeling and the atmosphere in the home that gives me some kind of integrated picture. Same thing if I say, oh, that guy is a modest guy. It doesn't mean that he may not get up uh, in front of a room and uh, give a shear or even lead some kind of chant if he's in Madrid and B'nai Akiva. But I see all of those external parts of him as something that's integrated with who he is um, and his whole character. And then when we move that into Tzniyut when it comes to clothing, I'd like to say that with regard to clothing, also what we're looking for is that somebody's entire personhood, not just their external physical body, will be the focus. And can we find as a community boundaries or standards of dress that help people feel that they're not being covered up or that their physical body doesn't matter, that they're going to deny that they are physical human beings, um, but at the same time, that their body isn't going to be where the story ends. It's going to be where the story begins. And this is a concept that I think applies equally to women and to men. And it is something that should be discussed in every yeshiva, also with young men. And, you know, if I could add just also one more point, because sometimes people hear this, especially students, you know, and they say to me, okay, so, okay, we buy it. You know, Tznud is about having some kinds of integrated um, experience and not just the external. So then why is there so much focus on our clothing and, and our bodies on, on external things? And I think there we have to just speak really practical. Like, first of all, we live in a physical world. The first thing that people see about you is your physical self, including your clothing. And that means that through our clothing, we have an opportunity to give people a taste of who we are. Meaning at the very least, our fashion senses or what mood we're in. Uh, am I on the way to a wedding? Uh, what community do I see myself a part of? I once heard a quote that I love that clothing doesn't so much cover the body as expose the soul. That clothing is there because if, if you just saw an, an, an undressed, completely revealed body, so you'd only see female, you'd have no way to know who I am. My clothing is a way of giving people a sense of who I am. And that's part of connecting the internal and external. And if, if I could just add in one more thing, I think it's not just that clothing is a reflection of who we are and gives people a little bit of a taste of something more than just the physical, but clothing also really influences how we feel. So, you know, when I'm dressed up, I remember having my kids and being in the hospital and you're in the hospital gown and you feel like, you know, almost like an invalid. And then you're like, I'm, I'm really okay. And you put on your own clothing or some makeup or something. And all of a sudden you, you feel different or, um, you know, some people that I know they need to study in their like sweats and, you know, feel really relaxed because that's how they study well. Whereas other people need to be dressed in order to be productive and study. And I think about all the ways that clothing influences us. Also, you know, here in Israel, two of us live in Israel. 
a khayal could get on the bus in Madin in his uniform. He doesn't even have neshek. He doesn't have any weapon on him. But just seeing that khayal in uniform, you kind of feel everybody feel more secure on the bus. And so too, we know, you know, going to a wedding and the way that clothing influences the atmosphere or Shabbat clothing. So I would like to just, you know, begin this conversation by saying that if we could even just start by talking about clothing in general and speaking about how men and women think about external things like clothing, that would already be a big, I think, um, game changer in how we as a community have this conversation. That is a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much for expressing that. And certainly, I know exactly what you mean when you talk about the way you feel wearing certain clothes. Back when I ran a yeshiva, I used to every day go in with my white shirt, my tie, and my jacket. And the fact that today I rarely wear a white shirt and tie and jacket if it's not Shabbos, I didn't change in that manner. I mean, we all change, but it's not about that. It was... I'm teaching Torah now as a Rebbe in a yeshiva, and therefore there's a certain way I want to feel about myself and a certain way I want to portray myself. I'm not pretending I'm something that I'm not, but Kavod Torah requires a certain type of dress, unlike when I'm recording a podcast or walking in the street or doing something else like that. So I, I certainly relate to that. Just one question on this particular point, and then we'll get to some of the other issues we're going to discuss. Do you think that there should be greater emphasis on snoot for men, meaning specifically regarding clothing, given what you just said, because the way you described clothing in general applies equally to men and women. And if it really is about reflecting how you feel and reflecting how you want to be perceived so that you're seen as more than just a physical body. In fact, while it seems that for women and for girls, this is something which is very strongly emphasized, I would say for men, if snoot is emphasized at all, it's emphasized in terms of not having overly lavish weddings, if anyone even talks about that. But in terms of, oh, you're not wearing the right thing in yeshiva, it's usually just a dress code. I don't think it's usually presented as snoot. Do you think we have to start emphasizing for men also the concept of snoot in clothing specifically? I think so. And I think for two reasons, you know, because there's two aspects of snoot, which maybe we'll get into later. But one is this more general aspect about how you present yourself and how the clothing affects you and how it affects the environment and how it shows what community we are, we are a part of. And I think young men today, especially in the Orthodox community, know that even with choices of what kind of yarmulke they want to wear. You know, they know that to some degree, but I think uh, it's important to think about it on a more personal level, not just on the level of what community do I want to show people that I'm a part of. But we'll get into, you know, um, a, a second and more maybe sensitive part of Snuyut, which is the part of Snuyut that connects into the kind of society that we're trying to build, especially um, in terms of sexuality and boundaries and things like that. And living in the 21st century, as we do, and seeing the way that clothing styles have changed for men, I think even that second aspect of Snuyut, which maybe used to be more focused on women, has also shifted in terms of something that today is so much more applicable to men in terms of the style of their clothing and the tightness of the clothing and um, the whole look that uh, people are kind of sometimes more or less aware of. Schools definitely have taken note of. There are definitely high schools I know in uh, for sure the tri-state area that have rules about how tight the pants of young men could be today and things like that. And, you know, do you go out in really short shorts and sleeveless? And how do you go to Mayan in Israel in the summer? All of these kinds of things need to be part of the conversation today. Um, very much so for boys, young men, and uh, men in general. Okay. Now, in actual fact, 
whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and we're saying it probably is a bad thing, Snoot generally, it seems, is emphasized more among young women than among young men. And I want to ask about what seems to be an observation that many people have, which is that a lot of young women who otherwise find Torah Judaism to be something very amenable to them, nevertheless, at least it said, have a real problem with the norms of Snoot with regard to clothing. They find it difficult to be diligent in the areas of Tzniut, whereas in other areas, they don't find that same difficulty. And it can be a major issue for girls in school. They might not want to follow the dress code. They may not want to follow the mandates and the education that they're getting in that. So first of all, I wanted to know, Shana, if that observation is really accurate. And assuming it is correct, why is that the case? Why does modesty, why does Tzniut seem to have this unique position psychologically as the area of halacha where so many people look for leniencies or want to drop it altogether? In terms of is that observation correct? Absolutely. I don't think that any of us have to look too far to know how many uh, young women, women in general, struggle with this area of uh, halacha. I think especially today, because there's so much of a greater gap between, I guess, Western society and norms today in dress than the expectations that halakha has for us. So when everyone in society, you know, kind of dressed more or less in a more modest way, I think the struggle and the tension wasn't felt as greatly as it is today. But in terms of why people are struggling, I mean, every person is a different story. Every woman is a different story. So it could be that there are young women who struggle with the halachot of dress are part of a much broader and general, you know, more general struggle in Avodat Hashem in general and halachic commitment and what's the point of all this and does, does God really care and does this really bring meaning to my life and disconnection. But the only thing that you may see on the outside is the lapses in terms of how makpid they are when it comes to tzniyu, because you're not necessarily given insight to whether or not they're davening or what they're doing on Shabbos and things like that. Whereas there may be somebody else, and I definitely meet a lot of young women like this in the world that I travel in, who really are very serious about their Vodat Hashem. And they may even daven three times a day and learn seriously. And they really feel like their Judaism is, you know, core part of their identity. And at the same time, they could be struggling specifically in this area. And when I think about why, uh, and why is it different than maybe other areas of halacha is because the way that you dress cuts to the core of who you are. It cuts to the core of your identity. It has to do with how you see yourself. It has to do with how you present yourself to others. It has to do with the relationship to your body. It has to do with our connection to our sexuality, to the community that we want to associate with or maybe distance ourselves from. It's hard for me to think of many areas of halacha that carry so much weight and significance around them or that means so much and are also so visual and so kind of in your face in terms of the way people think of you. So all of that definitely contributes to the struggle that many people have, many women have in this area. I want to get back to some of the struggles in a little bit, but I first would like to go through some of the educational aspects of the issue. So let's talk about that first. My question for you is, how do you think, and this is a broad question, but how do you think that Snute should be taught appropriately? And you already started getting into that with your opening today, your introduction. But I mean by this, what's the right way to go about it? Because there are two different aspects that we need to deal with. First of all, there is the halachic aspect. What does halacha demand? 
what does halacha require people to do, and how do we teach that effectively and appropriately. And then there's the social or psychological perspective of how do we treat these halachot effectively without creating issues of body image, over-sexualization of women, over-emphasis on external factors and elements like these. So I'll present that to you right now, Shana. Okay. This is a topic I think a lot about. I've been teaching Sneud uh, to young women for close to 20 years. And before that, my mother, uh, Mrs. Abby Lerner, taught a course in Central Women in Jewish Law that also, Sneud has been a topic of conversation, I guess, in my family and amongst us and something I'm always revisiting and always thinking about how can we tweak it and do it better. So I want to start with something broader, which is that in any area of education, both, let's say, in my home with my children and with students, I always like to start with what I call core values, like underlying core ideas. values. Yeah, underlying ideas, general principles, positive concepts, right? So let's take something that's less fraught with uh, sensitivity, like Shabbos. Okay, with Shabbos, if someone on the outside, like uh, someone who wasn't religious at all, came to me and said, Shana, what's, what's this Shabbos deal? Tell me about it. If I would start with Borer, or if I would start with the nitty-gritty little halachot, they'd be like, oh, I thought this was something beautiful. I thought this was something meaningful. So we know that, like, yes, yeah, Shabbos is a palace in time, as Heschel called it. And But yeah, when it comes down to it, you need to build that feeling by having a very detailed system. The same way any system of law, by the way, has its ekronode and its major principles, and then comes down to the bitsua, the expression. How do you actually make that system work and function or no different than a board game, you know, that has like some or a basketball game, like there's some big things. And then there's some little nitty gritty rules that could have been that way, could have been that way, but it, that's part of the system. So when it comes to dress and when it comes to tenute, I like to always start with, again, I touched on this a little bit already, but like the many rules that clothing plays. Again, I, know, I don't know if you've heard of a website called Drachaha, which is a, a website about women and mitzvot that I'm involved in. And I definitely would want listeners to know about. But when we worked on the articles of Sniut there, it was really, really important to us that we started with like the different functions of clothing. Um, and, and especially as you see them, even through our own sources, like clothing as being something that protects us from the elements, clothing as being something that also is a way um, of feeling beautiful, clothing as a way of self-expression, uh, like when Reuven comes back to the boar and he finds that Yosef isn't there, he tears his clothing because he's in mourning. Or when Esther needs to feel like she's going to walk into Achashverosh and she needs that confidence, so she puts on the big day machut, right? Or clothing as the way that it influences other people or connects us to community. I find it really hard to talk about the little details before you kind of have buy-in or people understand the underlying concepts. And that is something I always tell my students, I would give get up and give a lecture like that to any audience, including not religious Jews, including non-Jews, because non-Jews also have to think about these concepts of dress and how they want to present themselves to the world and what kind of message do they want to send and how does their clothing influence them and what do they identify with. I, my, my husband's an emergency room doctor and I remember when he started his residency in New York Hospital of Queens, a few weeks in, he had a, a class that was six women and four men. And a few weeks in, the head of the department, who was a woman herself, sent a message to all of the residents that you guys aren't in medical school anymore. You're doctors. And, and she said, women cannot come to the ER with pigtails. 
and you can't come any of you with shirts that have like words across the front of them. Your patients need to feel that you take yourself seriously. Now, why does it matter? You know, someone graduated from University of Pennsylvania. She has pigtails or she doesn't have pigtails. What, that doesn't really affect how she is as a doctor. But these are questions that all people, because we live in a physical universe, need to really encounter and to think about and to process. And it's frustrating sometimes that that's our reality. And I'll also say to my students, like, yes, it's frustrating that we're not in Ghanedin. In Ghanedin, there was no split between the physical and the spiritual. That's why they didn't need clothing, because Azam could look at Chava and not just see physical body, but see Chava and all of her character traits. And therefore, he didn't need, they didn't need to have clothing because today, again, we put on clothing to help people get past just the external and be able to connect with something more, which, by the way, this isn't our topic now, but I think that's why in marriage, we're able to return to that. When you have such a deep appreciation of who the other person is, the clothing is no longer necessary because you don't just see them as a body. But I'll put that aside for now. That all is, I think, the first part of Sniud. And I spend a lot of time when I'm teaching Sniud on that aspect. Um, even also like through the halachot of tefillah and through the halachot of how Tamid Facham has to dress if he takes himself seriously, like you said before. And only after once I feel that that's in place, do I move on to the second aspect, which the second aspect is what I call, how do we create a society of men and women who can respect each other and um, value each other as individuals and as people and not objectify each other. And here, there's clearly differences in the halacha between what the halacha expects of men and women, not because women carry all of the responsibility, but because there's some real differences. And here we see that the halacha has parts of it that are like objective and true for all time, parts of it that are gonna depend on context and where you find yourself in the community that you live in, and parts of it that honestly come down to what may feel like um, random choices, why this line and not that line. But in the end, if you don't have a concrete expression of something and something's just pie in the sky, like left in the air, then a system doesn't usually hold up that way. And here, you know, I spend a lot, a lot of time on the sources, but I'm very honest with my students in a way that I, I really feel like today in the 21st century, you're almost not allowed to be, which is talking about that men and women are both responsible for the functioning of the world and a healthy society, but there are differences between them and those differences, which you're almost not allowed to acknowledge in the world that we live in anymore, affect the halacha. Like I see Chazal as being brilliant in terms of what they understood to be the challenges that men and women face. So, you know, just in, in a few sentences, I'll say that we see in the halacha that much more of an onus is placed on men in terms of how they perceive the world, what they look at, uh, where they go, what we call shmirani naim, the way that they think about things, herhurim, and things like that. Whereas much more of an onus is placed on women in terms of how they present themselves. Now, this wasn't like a eeny, meeny, miny, mo, we'll give men that and we'll give that. Mm -hmm. It's because I think Chazal understood that maybe the struggle with men is more about how they look at things and perceive things, meaning they don't maybe struggle as much in how they present themselves. Not that today that is becoming more and more of a struggle, as I said before, but my mother would always love to bring the example of like, take the Oscars, the Academy Awards, so much talk about how every woman there is dressed and how she comes and, you know, and who's wearing it better. Whereas my mother would always say, you could take any man that's sitting there 
pluck him out of the audience, put him down at a Haredi wedding. And like, he's, he's set to go. Why is that? Why is that? It's because I think men don't struggle as much with how they present themselves, whereas women do struggle more with how they present themselves. And therefore, the halakha is going to place more onus on women in terms of the type of clothing they wear and how tight it is and how revealing it is and things like that. Now, it doesn't mean that either gender is exempt from also women have to think about how they look at the world and how they perceive it. And today with women, issues of pornography and things like that are more of an issue. We're seeing more of a conflation, I think, in today's generation. And men also have to think about how they present themselves. But when it comes to the halachic guidelines, I think there's a reason that the focus is different for men and women. And I think when you're able to talk honestly to students and respect them and be open with them and not beat around the bush and not be scared of like, oh no, if I say the wrong thing, they're gonna be turned off from religion. I think most thinking young people, they can appreciate, respect, and understand these concepts that I'm talking about. So first of all, Shana, I appreciate what you just said. It was actually my next question about how we teach these halachot, what's halacha, what's minhag, what's societal, what's psychological. I want to get back to that in just a moment. I also related to what you talked about with your husband in the hospital. I know that my wife and I, about two months ago, we had to take our son to a a local emergency medical place, whatever Mm -hmm. it was here in Beit Shemesh, and he had fainted. He's okay, but he had fainted and we had to go there. And we were really upset because the doctor, we didn't know who he was because he wasn't dressed like a doctor. We had to sort of figure out is he a doctor or is he a, because he was dressed the same way as everybody else? And I definitely relate to that idea because it does matter. And it's not a minor thing. You need to present yourself in a way which not just identifies you. It's not a matter of a name tag. It's also saying, I take myself seriously in this profession. Mm-hmm. I am representing a profession and not just myself. And you can have confidence in me. I'm not just some guy who came off the street and is pretending to be what you think I am right now or don't think that I am. So I, I definitely respect that. Yeah, I see, by the way, with students all the time, that when it comes to how they perceive others, 100%, like, meaning they will judge others and they will sum people up in one second based on how they're dressed and they'll say, oh, I don't think I could be friends with her. Why? Because I would never want to go out with him. Why? Because of his keepa, I, you know. But, but then when it comes to ourselves, it's like, well, no one should judge us. People should know that we're more than just our clothing. But when we're honest with ourselves, I think there's often a gap, meaning we know. And, and then, you know, and I ask, how, how are you judging someone just based on their keeper? Like, well, he chose to wear that keeper, so he must know what it represents. And I think when we think about our choices, sometimes we don't want to take ownership and responsibility of the implications of them in the same way that we do when we're perceiving others. That's very interesting. I want to get back to what you said about halacha versus minhag and societal issues. To what degree can you say that our definition of modesty is societal? And I do know that in the sources, there are certain things that are presented as absolutes. It doesn't matter where you are. This is allowed and this isn't allowed. And there are other elements of dress that depend on the society in which you live. But a common example now, I'm going to give a very practical example, and I'm not asking you to poskin, but I just mean mm-hmm. as something which people discuss often is the question of girls or women wearing skirts. Mm-hmm. And in actual fact, if a woman wears pants, very often that's considered, oh, crossing some sort of line. For some women, wearing pants might be technically 
practically speaking, more tanua than wearing a skirt because yes. there are tighter short skirts and then there are very tanua pants. And yet we as a society, I'm not sure who we is, but I'll say that <laughs> we as a society have determined that skirts is that line and pants is the big no-no. And I'm trying to figure out if these things are real and if they aren't real, should we even value them and throw out these sort of random distinctions when it's really not something which is based on the laws of its newt anymore. It's based on what society has defined as the firm way of doing things. Such an important question and um, something that I think about a lot. Uh, I, want, I want to talk about it generally, and then I will uh, address the pants question. I think, Please. first off, intellectual honesty is so important when you're teaching. When you're teaching any topic, and definitely a topic as sensitive as this one, and by that, I mean teaching a topic from the sources, laying out the whole thing in a way that like you as the teacher don't control what the students get to see and what they don't get to see, um, which isn't only true about the sources and the range of sources you bring. It's also true about do you show them the whole source or do you cut it exactly before that line that like maybe, you know, either the cooler or the chumra, you don't want them to really know. I think students pick up when there's when their teachers are being intellectually honest with them. And that definitely builds trust. And I think um, when you do that and you show the halachic development from the psukim, to the Gemaras, to the Rishonim, to the Achronim, down to the Halacha Lamasa, the practical Halacha, then students understand where things are coming from. And when it's done right, it really helps them develop respect and trust for the Halachic system. And it also helps them be better deciders, like meaning makes them make better decisions in terms of, because something that they thought like, oh, I thought that was chiyot, or I never realized that that was real, or or the other way around, something that they thought was, you know, let's say like skirts, like you can't be a tenua person if you don't wear a skirt, and then they're waiting for that source, and they realize, oh, it's not exactly like that. So when I teach in that vein, I really try to distinguish between Doraita, Durabanan, Minhag, other additional societal and educational elements that I think also sometimes get factored in. Now, I know that the price of that is that someone may say, well, once you tell someone it's Durabanan, then they may say, oh, it's only Durabanan. I don't have to do that. So first of all, I speak a lot about that's the famous only phrase, Durabanan. only Durabanan. Like most of our life is Durabanan. But also I say to them, you're, you're kind of kidding yourself if you think that there's no price of the other way. Because when you teach everything as if it's the same, people end up on their own making choices and often their choices are less good halachic choices. Remember years ago, like a very Haredi woman telling me she kind of had it with Shiva Nikiyim and she couldn't, you know, sustain doing the decode in these internal exams and whatever. So she just decided on her own to do day one and two. And I said to her, that's so interesting. You know, the halacha understands that sometimes someone may need to cut back, but it thinks day one and day seven. Now, the reason, if I'm teaching a kala, I'm going to tell her the l'chachilas every day and then the bidi of it. And then, but, she, you know, she learned with someone is like, if I let her know that, then she's going to maybe, you know, do the not ideal option without realizing that people on their own are humans and they're going to, and I'd like to empower students to make the best halachic decisions that they can, even if they're not always able to do uh, what's ideal. And another part of that is I really try to do my best to bring a wide range of halachic opinions. 
Obviously, you know, at some point I am going to have to choose what I think is within that range, but still anything that I feel like has somewhat of a consensus in terms of a respected authority or someone who's considered, you know, bentora or a, a woman who's very halachic. So I will bring from the most stringent read to the more lenient reads, as long as they have halachic credibility and basis. And part of that is, first of all, you're teaching a classroom. You don't know where people are coming from. You want everyone to be able to find themselves in there. Also, people are on journeys in the course of their life. So some an 18-year-old who may be like, oh, of course, none of this is a big deal. You don't know where she's going to be five years later. And on the flip, someone who at 18 is like, oh, this is over my head. It's too much. I don't want to cut off from her potential. I don't want to you know, decide what I think uh, she's capable of. I want to lay it out there for her. Uh, and I also think it really also helps people respect other opinions. So if a student is more stringent, but now she knows that her friend who follows a more lenient opinion, it's not just because she doesn't care about halacha, she actually has a different rab or a different pusik or a different community minhag or the opposite. If we could look at uh, someone who's, um, uh, you know, Hasidish or they're Haredin, you're like, oh, it's ridiculous, those Hasidish women with two head coverings. Like, no, actually it's based on a chatam sofer. It's a very credible ruling. It's not how we hold in our community, but they're not doing ridiculous things. That I think gives people the ability to just respect people on the right, on the left, um, as halachic Jews, even if it's not, you know, their approach. So all of that is in terms of how you teach the halacha. If you want to talk about the specific topic of pants as an example of that, so like when I, think I we should. when when I when I teach pants, I try to break it first. You know, if you if you ask a random Orthodox person on the street why are there so many women who don't wear pants, many of them I think will tell you Kligaver, because it's you know it's male clothing. That's like a go-to in people's head, even though they have a lot of questions on that because they say, but today there are pants that are made just for women, and today there are many women who wear pants and what to find something as Klegever. So first we look at the Doraita issue of Klegever, what's considered male clothing. Also making the point that if you indeed hold that something is considered male clothing, uh, let's say the Mincha Yitzchak is a posik who holds that pants is considered male clothing even today, then it would be forbidden to wear even under a skirt or even as pajamas, because it's not its new question, Klegever. It's uh, something that applies even the privacy of your home. So we, we learned that issue. Then we move on to the different, you know, Rabbanan questions of Sniyut. Uh, is there a question of tightness of pants or of the fact that the separation between the legs maybe brings the eye more to the area of the crotch and talking about different halachic concerns about pants. And after we, you know, examine that, and then we say, well, maybe there are pants that those wouldn't be issues about because they're looser pants or because you're wearing a longer shirt, like more of a tunic. Um, show them sources. Rav Obadi Yosef, Rav Nachum Rabbinavich, Rav Maaleh Rav J. David Bleich from Yeshiva University, um, Rav Stav, who wrote a great book on Sneud that came out a couple of years ago. I show them sources who really are honest and say that there is such a thing as halachically acceptable pants. But then we examine all kinds of other societal and educational issues that may lead a woman to decide that even if there are pants that could be considered halachic, maybe she doesn't want to wear pants at all. And then we talk about issues like identity, you know, that idea that when you see a woman in a skirt, 
you kind of know who she is and the community she belongs to the same way that when you see a man in a kippah, even though kippah, by the way, is a minhag at the end of the day, and yet we take it so seriously. And a, a skirt, you know, we talk about, okay, if that's your reason, so then maybe a, a woman who's in the army or on a university campus may feel like while she's there and she wants to send a message to herself or to others of who she is, that's really important for her. Whereas maybe at another time in her life when she doesn't feel that need as much, maybe halakhically acceptable pants would be okay for her. Or if she's covering her hair and she feels like everyone knows who she is, you know, uh, who, who she is. So we talk about that issue and we talk about the issue of um, slippery slope, like meaning are the pants that you really want to wear those huge sweatpants or is it really like just going to be a gateway to pants that in the end aren't going to be okay but like we talk about all of that honestly and at the end I tell them and I really feel this way that I will go to the mattresses and I will stand behind any student who decides to wear um, pants that are halakhically acceptable meaning I will I, I and it's not me it's all the poskin that I just mentioned you know I, I will say she's as Tanua as everybody else. And I will set her up and tell the guy she's a Tanua person and she makes halakhic decisions. And, you know, but I will also tell this young woman that part of deciding how you dress is being ready to own your decisions and take responsibility for them. So if, you know, you find that um, there's guys that let's say you want to go out with, but they hear that you wear pants, even halakhically acceptable ones, and they say she's not for me, and you find that that is really upsetting you, then that's also a factor to take into account. Not because I won't stand behind you, but because if in the end you're not happy with your decision, you can't change the world and you can't change other people. So if you're the kind of person who says, I own this and I don't care what people say, and that guy's not going to be for me, amazing. But Part of being a grown-up, I always say to them, is owning your decisions, taking responsibility for them, and not just complaining about how unfair the world is when at the end of the day, you get to decide the decisions that you make. So we try to really break it down. So maybe if we're talking about Sanua pants, then the difference between skirts and pants is kind of like the color of your kippah. Or perhaps if you were a black hat or if you were a jacket and davening, which you might not wear a hat and jacket and davening because you feel that halakhically it's not required. That's fine. But if you want to go out with somebody in the Haredi world, they may still say that that tells you something about who they are and how they identify. In addition to this new issue, in addition to the Kligever issue, there's also a societal and social implication in terms of how you're presenting yourself, in terms of who you are and how you want people to perceive you, which gets back to really your point from the very beginning. Yes, but I also think we still also need to be honest with ourselves that most of the you know, or a lot, many of the pants that young women would like to wear today. And I'll include myself in that. You know, I remember one time when I, I have four boys and then a daughter. And when she was very little, I brought her one day to work and like, you know, these little skinny jeans and a little cute shirt or something. And one of my colleagues said to me, I know that's how you really want to dress. And I said, kind of, you know, meaning like these are, just because you teach this topic doesn't mean uh, it's not something that is a struggle or that it comes easy all the time. But I think that with skirts, 
I don't think it's random. Like, I don't think that it's the same as like, oh, you know, a velvet kippa versus a kippa suga or like that there's no inherent meaning, you know, there. So the kippa suga became associated with a certain hashkafa and the velvet kippa became associated, but there's no actual inherent meaning in the knitted kippa versus the velvet. With skirts, I don't want to go that far because I think there is a reason why skirts became the go-to choice. And that is because, at least for many, you know, centuries, can't say that about the tight little black, you know, very short skirt that many women are wearing today. But for many centuries, skirts as a whole were a more modest you know, uh, way of dressing. So I don't want to detach it completely and just say that it's like something random, even though I very much agree that when we're talking about halakhically acceptable pants at that point, that would be true. OK, that's very fair. The very fact that we're discussing Tzniyut in such detail right now says something about the obsession that a lot of people have that surrounds this mitzvah. I've always contended that any mitzvah, no matter what the mitzvah is, if we make it the sole focus of our Judaism, it becomes a form of idolatry. In some sectors of Orthodox society, I think, this has become true perhaps for Tzniyut. In some seminaries, I know that they have a full-year course on the topic for you know hours every week. I'm not quite sure what can be taught during that time. Maybe you can tell me that's reasonable, and maybe it is. I know there's a podcast, The Francisca Show. In her episode this week, she interviewed her mother and her sister about Sniut. I was just listening to it with my wife, Eliza, yesterday, and she mentioned a rabbi in the sister's seminary that she had gone to at some point, and the rabbi pointed out that he was disturbed because now that it was the spring and it was warmer, he notices that the girls' tights are thinner than they should be. Aside from the <laughs> fact I found that very creepy, it's also... I don't even understand where this is coming from. There's a certain degree of going beyond boundaries, I think, that's involved as well. Now, obviously, that's one particular case. You know, there are many institutions that have extremely strict rules about this, not only for their students, but also what their mothers can wear, also Mm -hmm. what their sisters can wear in order to be admitted to the school. And even for some people who greatly value Tznut and don't have any problem with Tznut per se, it can still seem like an unhealthy obsession, maybe the obsession in some communities. How can we move away from this unhealthy obsession to a more healthy engagement with Snead? Mm, such an important question that like really cuts to the heart of um, what so many people find problematic today. No question that it has become the obsession. Now, there are definitely communities where it's like Talmud Torah is for men, and that's also become an obsession in some way, and Snead is for women. And they've taken it to those extremes. But when I think about how we got there and why that's so, because when you look at the sources, that's so not the case. You do not see the sources obsessing over this. And I'm talking Gemara's Rishonim, not a 21st century postgame. I think what happened is that the world, as the world has gone more and more and more to one extreme of everything exposed and, you know, everything's trivialized and sexuality, whatever, it's open for everybody the backlash in religious communities, not only Jewish, by the way, has been to go to the other extreme. So I don't think that Snoot was an obsession in the 50s, for example, when the world was overall, you know, more dressed and and more of a modest place, at least not in the way it is now. And, you know, when I talk to my mother, I talk to my, when I talk to my grandmothers about this, like definitely it was not, it wasn't an issue. It just wasn't spoken about, not because everyone perfectly met the expectations of the halacha, but it just wasn't, I don't think it was such a big deal. Uh, there's a, a popular um, like cartoon that you could find on the internet 
that I absolutely love that I always share with my students, which is two women who are walking and they, they pass each other. They're walking maybe on the beach or on the boardwalk. And one woman is in a bikini with sunglasses. And the other woman is in a full burqa, like everything's covered, the full headgear and her full body. And the woman in the bikini looks at the woman in the burqa and you see the bubble of what she's thinking. And she's thinking everything's covered, but her eyes. What a cruel male dominated culture. And the woman in the burqa is looking at the woman in the bikini and she's thinking nothing's covered, but her eyes. What a cruel male dominated culture. And I tell my students that I think this cartoon is so amazing because there's really truth to both extremes, meaning fashion and our young women don't realize this is often run and controlled by male designers. And that shouldn't dictate how women and especially young women today dress. And that's become one extreme. And on the other extreme, we shouldn't have people telling us that everything should be totally covered and that your body should be hidden and that you should be just a neshama. And, you know, I could take off that it ends up with people feeling shame and guilt and nervousness around their body. What I hope that we could aim for as a community is some kind of honest and healthy balance that doesn't obsess over this, but also doesn't pretend that it's a non-issue. Meaning uh, sometimes people try to claim that the halachot of tzniyut, they're what's responsible for sexualizing women. Because halacha, you know, addresses this topic, they're objectifying women and they're sexualizing women. And I kind of want to say, you know, back to those people, really? Come on, <laughs> like the world is a sexual place. It's built in. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's a something that could be very positive, but it's also something that is complicated and that has to be nuanced. And the laws of Sneud are coming to guide us in a world by helping us find a healthy way to integrate that sexuality and function, you know, best within that reality. The problem today is that in our modern generation, the religious world has taken it to the other extreme. And when you take it to the other extreme, then it indeed does end up objectifying and sexualizing women just from the opposite place. So if we can bring it back, I always like to go back. I always, when I start the course, I, I say to them, I know this is impossible. What I'm about to ask you, because I know everyone's coming in with experiences and baggage and you can't come in like a clean place. But I'm asking you as much as possible, if you could kind of try to come with a fresh perspective to the sources and look at the Gemara's and Rishonim and judge them by themselves without all the baggage and other things that you know about, and then see what you think Chazal were trying to say. Because when you look at the sources through that perspective, you see that both the ideas, the concepts, and even the specific guidelines are way more balanced than the worlds, the religious worlds around us the way that they speak about it in our time. I think that offers us a really good transition to move away from some of the educational questions into dealing with some of the challenges that are presented by many people who find Snoot very, very difficult or even oppressive. And in preparation for our conversation, I spoke to some friends of mine who raised a number of important and sometimes troubling points. So I'd like to hear your reaction to some of them. Is that okay? Sure. I'm going to present a comment that I heard here. This comment is that women in Western civilization are dealing with being at war with their bodies and feeling comfortable with their bodies. 
Appearances are so overemphasized at the same time that women are asked to de-emphasize their femininity and sexuality. In the Torah world in particular, people are told or women are told to cover up and hide everything. And at the same time, and I learned about this in particular in an earlier episode that talked about Shiduchim, how the Orthodox world tries to get people married. The first question that's often asked by a guy is, what does she look like? How heavy is she? This contradiction can create a toxic dynamic between caring about appearance and feeling a need to cover everything up. Basically, we're saying this is a breeding ground for shame. And in other words, women are told to downplay sexuality at the same time they're emphasized that they have to cover everything up and therefore that sexualizes them at the exact same time. And I'll give a related comment. The emphasis on sleut contributes to an over-sexualization of women in religious society, probably what my co-host on Intimate Judaism, Tali Rosenbaum, has called the Madonna whore dichotomy. That's a lot, but I'm presenting <laughs> that to you as one challenge. I've got some more, but I'd like to hear what you say about that first one. All of the points that you just raised are indeed very, very upsetting, and we need to be very aware of them. We need to be very aware of them, first and foremost, as parents, raising young men and raising young women. We need to be very aware of them as educators, um, as, as, as female educators and as male educators. And I think, um, I know for myself, like in my own life or with my daughter, with my students, I'm always, again, trying to find that right, very fine balance between embracing our bodies embracing our sexuality, rejoicing in them, not feeling embarrassed of our bodies or even of the fact that we're sexual beings and that we feel different things. Um, and, and really, I, and, and talking a lot about that, you know, wanting, wanting people to feel good and not feel, and thinking that it's like healthy, you know, to um, obviously walk around in your home or in pajamas that are different than how you walk around in the street and feeling comfortable and if you have an all-girls uh, pool party or an all-female chofnifrad, uh, a separate beach, the fact that a lot of times you go to that and people are fully covered, like I think that's part of what growing up, I mean, as, as Sanua as we were, never felt disconnected from my body or ashamed of it or whatever, because like there were a lot of places where I didn't walk around the way that I walked around the street and felt very comfortable uh, with that and you know learned to embrace that and feel good about that. And yet striving to balance that with um, women also understanding, you know, that they don't have to put their body on display either. Meaning on the one hand, we don't want them to feel like they have to cover their body or hide it or feel embarrassed of it. On the other hand, we also don't want their body to be the way in which they draw attention or we don't want them to have to feel pressure to dress a certain way. So let's say even after you deal with the questions of sniyut. I remember when I taught in uh, in all girls high school back in America. So we had a day that we all went to a water park and there was a lot of conversation amongst the female staff. Should there be any guidelines for how uh, students should come there? And what we decided is that as a school, we said that nobody could come in a bikini, not because of the sneer issues of halacha, but because with young women, you're always dealing with these fine lines between a healthy acceptance of their body and at the same time, not wanting to make it all about the body. And we didn't want girls to start feeling like, oh, only those really skinny girls feel comfortable coming in bikinis and others in a full bathing suit, whereas others want to come in a t-shirt over their bathing suit and shorts. And I mean, People who are involved in education of young women are always revisiting these topics and discussing them. So I think, first of all, awareness, 
and not like poo-pooing it and saying, oh yeah, yeah, shame, whatever, but at the time, but these issues are real. And we know there's many women today that struggle with eating disorders or struggle with feeling of disconnection from their body or for sure as they um, move on and start dating and, and get engaged, sometimes the disconnection that they feel from sexuality or years of being told that that's something that they're not supposed to think about, whereas for men, it's more natural and kind of can't really disconnect. Even if you wanted to, you could feel shame and guilt, but I don't know if you could disconnect. Women could actually disconnect and, and not even be aware of themselves. So looking for some middle grounds. I just feel like today, you know, I'm just thinking about this now as an afterthought. Today, I think sometimes because we're so much more aware and conscious of shame and things like that, I see sometimes schools erring in the other direction where I see so many high schools today afraid to talk about Sneud at all, afraid to raise it because we don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to insult anyone. We don't want anybody to be embarrassed of their body. And that I don't think does good either because young women today are surrounded by these issues and you have to deal with them with integrity, with sensitivity, with respect in mature ways, but ignoring it I don't think it's helpful for them either. That raises a lot of other issues, Shana, especially when you talk about mixing up religion and the possibility of shame. One element that actually relates directly to that that somebody mentioned to me is that, yes, Snute is designed to try to balance that war that women might have. I'm speaking about women's Snute right now. The desire to look good with the desire at the same time to cover up, avoiding over-sexualization with at the same time not trying to deny who you are. Someone mentioned to me, yeah, but those rules were made by men for women. We don't see in our classic sources, admittedly, we don't really know what happened behind the scenes, but at least as it appears in Shas, in the Rishonim, in the Achronim, there are very, very few women's voices that are part of this conversation. And I would guess that if Chazal were writing halachot today, if today, for example, the Gemara is being written down, there might be many more women's voices, particularly in the area of Tzniyut. I would hope in other areas as well. But let's talk about this one. How would you respond to somebody who would say that religion and shame have been mixed up together and that is exacerbated by the fact that men made these laws for women? First of all, I mean, is a case and is a yofi that we live in a time where, thank God, women's voices are much more part of the conversation. The whole goal of the Drachaha website was that it's written by women for women. Men also use the website, but that it's it's written in a woman's voice, even as it's quoting all of the um, classic sources. But even the presentation, when thought about from a woman's perspective, is going to be different because you're you're looking at it as an insider, as someone who herself experiences this and thinks about it. And it's not only true in these very sensitive areas, like even when we examine there a topic like kiddish, and we think about oh, should women make kiddish? What if you have a single woman? What if you have a divorced woman? What a, you know, issues of sensitivity that maybe um, people hadn't stopped to think about before. Or my husband always says, like, he learned Kedushin, but then when he had to teach Kedushin to a group of advanced young women in the Migdaldo's uh, advanced Talmud program, he said all of a sudden questions crossed his mind that he had never thought about as a young bachar, because when you're teaching it to older women, especially married women, you have to come to terms with the way the Gemara presents something very, very differently. So 
Yes, on the one hand, I think we want women to be part of this conversation. On the other hand, I do not want to go to the place of where society has gone to today, that men are not allowed to be part of this conversation or weigh in on it or have thoughts and opinions. I think uh, the Rabbani Stav, of David and Avram Stav in their book, uh, they address this very well in the introduction of how could it be that two male rabbis could even write a book on Sneed? they did a, a great job about addressing this. I don't like to go to the place of like those rabbis and what did they know and what did they think? Um, I, I like to say yes, and there may be issues that they didn't take into account, but they were married to women and they had daughters and they weren't out to get women. More that maybe society sometimes has changed and we have to account for that. But the male-female issue when it comes to this, I don't see the guidelines that are given in Chazal to be very oppressive. They seem to actually be very balanced and to match up, like let's say the knee as a guideline of like where the upper leg ends. You see that in modern day that, you know, many politicians, Queen Elizabeth, uh, like meaning they're, they're, uh, people who are professional, a lawyer who's presenting a case in a courtroom on their own, people who aren't Jewish religious oftentimes come to not always exactly the expectations of halacha, but often similar, meaning this didn't like, they didn't just choose randomly. I think there was a lot of logic and reasoning that went into it. So I think when people try to dismiss things only because the rabbis were part of it, I find that upsetting. I, I also think that if you look at the actual mikarut, most of the halacha is actually placed on the men meaning the main Gemara in Brachot that talks about Sniud and Erva is talking about men's responsibility in terms of what they could see and not see. My students are always shocked that there's no Hilchot Sniud Nashim in the Shulchan Aruch. If you want to find anything about dress in the Shulchan Aruch and the Mishnah Buri, you have to go to Hilchot Kriyachma and derive from there what the implications are for women. So that to me is huge, meaning as opposed to today's conversation, which is all about women and their responsibility and they need to cover up so that they don't bring down the men when you look down at back at the original sources that's not at all where the conversation was at the conversation was much more in terms of men and their responsibility and you don't see any explicit sources really um in terms of erva about this is what a woman has to do or this is what she has to you know, cover, which gets me, I mean, this really pressing all my buttons, but um, I I really um, have a very big problem when Sniud is motivated for women from the place of Lifnei Iver Lotitin Nechshol, that, you know, that women are somehow a potential stumbling block for men in terms of hirhurim, inappropriate thoughts, or, you know, or inappropriate arousal. It, it's not that you don't see that in the halacha. And I'll bring it, Rabavadio safe mentions and others, but it's not something that goes back to our earliest sources. And I think that even if there's an element of that, that may be true, and we have to be honest about it, that definitely should not be the motivation. Um, men should not be the motivation for women's snuyut. It's dangerous in terms of women coming to see themselves as something bad. I once had a student years ago who told me, I had noticed that she didn't really take too much care in how she dressed, but in a way that felt extreme. And one time we sat down to talk, I didn't know what was on her mind. And she started saying how she is always, she feels guilty when she 
leaves her house in any dress or outfit that she feels good in. Why? Because she had been raised to think that she's going to bring down men. So anytime that she feels good, that might that must equal that somehow that's going to be problematic for men. You know, and over years of this, she had kind of integrated this perspective of like she has to wear clothing that she doesn't feel good in and that makes her feel ugly because otherwise she's not doing her responsibilities. So there's that issue. There's also the issue that we've seen uh, around us, which is that when you emphasize this too much, it definitely leads people to begin erasing women from pictures or even their names. You know, you'll get an invitation from Horea Kala, Rav So-and-so because uh, we wouldn't want someone to think about his wife's name because then they may come to think about her. And if you really look at women as problematic in that way, and also part of it that's less discussed is that it turns men into something, you know, it turns men into these animals that um, are only thinking about this all the time. That's not good for the men, obviously. It's not good for the woman either who wants to marry an animal and who wants to raise a little cute animal. So I think Coming back to the gap between our original sources and the conversation of today, I say, yes, men were involved in the original framing of the halacha, but actually the way that they originally framed the halacha actually is very, very balanced. It may be men of today or communities of today that have changed the conversation, but when we go back to the original sources, most of the chiyuv when it comes to erba and, and things like that are actually um, on men doesn't mean women don't have part of that and thinking not wearing clothing that you know is explicitly not Jewish in terms of its trends and its exposure but it's not the same level as the responsibility that we see placed on on the male part of society okay so in other words thinking of sniut as a way of helping men avoid their worst impulses is something which should be de-emphasized. It appears in the sources, but it should not be our main focus. Is that a fair statement? Yes, and it does not appear in most of our central original sources, um, okay. from what, at least from the study that, that I have done. And even if it's true, we could acknowledge it. I don't want to deny that aspect of it. It certainly should not be the motivator. I don't get up in the morning and say, how could I dress in a way that will protect those men around me? You know, oh, those poor miskinim, you know, uh, men who can't control themselves. And I, I, but I do get up in the morning and I say, how could I dress in a way that will help people see me, you know, as something that is an integrated person that has a body and a soul that has external and internal. I'm aware of the realities of, uh, you know, of sexuality and of men and women and of differences, but the motivator isn't what's good for men. It's what's good for me in the context of that bigger picture. That leads to my next challenge that somebody mentioned to me. The laws of Tzniyut underplay, as you just said, the importance and the significance of clothing in a person's self-identification, a person's self-definition, a person's self-expression. Now, of course, we do know that Jewish law does include and is primarily about setting limits. There are certain yeah. things in the Lota says that hard you to can't do. That. <laughs> right. It's hard to escape the fact that there are 365 things we cannot do. And that means there are things that I would want to do, but I can't do. If I didn't want to do it, God wouldn't have to tell me I can't do it. But at the same time, some people would argue, and I have heard this, that there's a difference between limits about what you do and limits that are at odds go against your very sense of self. And there mm -hmm. are times that Snute says not only 
that you have to dress a certain way, but you can't dress in a way that expresses what you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that challenge? So first of all, as you said, it's true, not only about Snoot, you know, like, I mean, if, if, if somebody wants to close a really big deal and it's supposed to be closed on Chavez or they're supposed to meet clients in a really nice restaurant, that's meaning there's all kinds of things that we want to do that we're limited in. I think going back to an earlier question here, because clothing cuts to identity and and, and something that's so uh, so core and physical to who we are, that's why maybe we experience it different. But it, it, it's, it's part of a continuum of other things. I think a lot about this question, not only when it comes to dress, about how can we allow for self-expression, even within strict organized religion. And I always come back to a poem, a sonnet that I read years ago in high school by William Wordsworth. It's called Nuns Fret Not at Their Convent's Narrow Room. Uh, where he discusses that sometimes there's a weight that's felt when we have too much liberty. And he it's a brilliant sonnet where he describes how while some people may feel limited by the rules of a sonnet because it's 14 lines and has a certain you know uh, rhyme scheme, that he finds solace in the structure that writing a sonnet kind of gives him because then within that, within those parameters and within those guidelines, he could express himself. I think that's the kind of education we're looking for ideally when it comes to halacha, to say, yes, we have parameters. Yes, we have guidelines. They definitely could be constraining, but sometimes they actually liberate us in other ways, like meaning someone who doesn't have any guidelines. So they are sometimes always chasing, you know, what's in fashion or needing to turn over their wardrobe. It's not like there's not, if you don't have halacha, there's not other things that sometimes affects your self-expression. So he writes in that poem, the prison onto which we doom ourselves, no prison is. Such a brilliant line. And he says that if we are able to help people move to that place of understanding that if you choose to be part of the system, so then it doesn't necessarily feel like uh, it's limiting, but then within that, you can now self-express within those boundaries. I think that's what we're looking for. Now, part of this, especially with young people, is making them understand that when they feel like they're self-expressing, they're also oftentimes being constrained. I I remember being a teacher again back in high school in America, had to proctor test. You weren't allowed to take anything in as a proctor, not a book, not. So you had to sit there for an hour, an hour and a half sometimes entertaining yourself, you know, not able to do anything. So I would like, oh, how many women here are wearing the same Uggs? How many students are wearing the same skirt? How many students? And, you know, like to, to say that there's a huge amount of self-expression in our Orthodox community today, even like even beyond Sniud, they're just responding to other constraints. So I think what we're trying, I think, to do is to say, yes, Halacha gives guidelines. There will be a point where like, if you want to wear those skinny jeans and like, that's how you want to express, that's going to be, you know, it may not be able to happen the same way that you can't sign that deal on Shabbos. But let's think about all the ways that you could self-express within the parameters uh, that were given. Like years ago, I remember reading an article uh, called Pants, Pants, Revolution. Uh, it's online, so I feel comfortable saying this. But the Pant, author Pants, spoke Revolution? Of, yes. And she spoke about how, you know, she was ready to not conform and she wanted to be her own person. And she texted all her friends that she was done wearing uh, skirts, that she was wearing pants. She's an individual. She makes choices for herself. Okay. And then a few paragraphs later, 
she writes that now that I, you know, was wearing jeans, I felt like every other American. That's what Americans do. They wear jeans. And I was just like, wow, like a few paragraphs later, I know awareness of, so do you want to conform? Do you not want to conform? Do you want to be an individual? Do you not want to conform to Lacha, but you just wanted to conform to something else? But kind of having that conversation and helping students realize, yes, to some degree, at some point, we're all going to conform to something. Can you choose halacha as the prison onto which we doom ourselves? No prison is and feel comfortable uh, with that. You know, the same way, not so different than when a parent sends a little kid to their room and says, go up to your room. You know, you, you, you need some space or you need some space from you. And the kid feels like, ah, I'm in prison now, whereas a teenager runs up to their room, slams the door and says, nobody come in here. The prison onto which we doom ourselves, no prison is. Can we present halacha in a way that students can buy into it and feel excited about it and positive about it and still find their freedom within that system? It's so funny you mentioned that idea of prison in Wordsworth. I was just thinking this morning about the famous Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, who wrote as he walked into the walls of the monastery in Kentucky, So Brother Matthew locked the gate behind me, and I was enclosed in the four walls of my new freedom. It's a very interesting way of thinking about that. One more challenge I want to ask about is how do we address judgmentalism that seems to always accompany Tzniyut? It often seems, and to some degree we've talked about this, but I want to put it right front and center right now, mm-hmm. it's frequently used as the exclusive measuring stick or yardstick about how a woman is faring on her religious journey. No one ever said to me, Shana, when I was in yeshiva, oh, I see you're wearing a sweater, so you must be doing well. You're obviously becoming more from. I have heard people have told me their own experiences where a rabbi or Another teacher in a seminary will say, oh, I see that you're wearing skirts or I see that you're wearing whatever it might be. Once again, creepiness aside, <laughs> therefore, I see that you're progressing in your religious journey. This is bothersome to me that we use anything as an exclusive measuring stick. You mentioned before the problems apply also to Libut HaTorah too, as important as that is. Yeah. Anytime anything becomes the one way we describe somebody in terms of they are becoming more or less from or mm-hmm. Erlich, we have a problem. But what about this judgmentalism? Is there a way to get out of it? Is there something we can do about it? So first of all, I wish young men were totally exempt from this. I'm not sure they are, you know, even in the like uh, gap year, I don't like that expression, but the Shana Ba'aret's experience of like, are you going to start wearing white shirts, button down shirts, um, hats, jackets? They're not exempt from it in terms of religious markers. I don't think it's halachic or carries the same weight, but I think they also contend with it. Just want to be fair to them on that point. Okay. Uh, I think young men with them also sometimes feel like I'm being judged by the fact that I wear striped shirts or colored shirts or t-shirts or jeans. You know, jeans is a big one there also. Um, it's really, really hard and unfortunate. It isn't fair. Like, you know, let's just put that out there. It is not fair that a young woman or any woman who davens and learns and works on her midot is not thought of as from or serious because she doesn't meet all the halachic standards of sniyut, where somebody who you know is maybe not careful about any of those things is able to kind of put on a skirt or maybe even a headband uh, in her hair, if I want to be cynical, and, and be tagged as religiously committed because it's a lot easier to change the way you dress than it is to change a mida or to really work on yourself or become... Uh, very serious about your religious observance. So what I want to say to this and where I think we could also um, maybe work on changing the conversation is that I don't want 
religious life to be thought of as all or nothing. It, people are complex and complicated and mix of a lot, a lot of different things. The more we as a community, as parents, as educators, make it all or nothing, the more children and young adults feel like either I'm in or I'm out. So if I'm not, if I'm already out, I'm already thought of as not from because I don't only wear skirts. So then what's the point of being Shomrinagia or what's the point of davening or what's the point of working on my mido? Because no matter what I do, I'm not ever going to be considered the from girl, the dosit, the, you know, so that's not really what we want. You know, I, I, I always like to say that we're not aiming for 100% consistency because to be in a process of growth means that you're like kind of think that you want to move ahead in something, but you're not there yet. So what, because you're not there yet, if, if, if a young woman comes to complain, she's like, it really bothers me that this other girl, she's not consistent. You know, she, she only wears skirts, but she's not Shomrigia. So I'm like, so what? So, so she shouldn't be Shomr, you know, she shouldn't wear only, what, what are you, she, she's either everything or she's nothing. Uh, I would like to encourage people that the world is a, uh, complex place and that you could be a really religious person and spiritual person, even as you're still working on something. I'd even like to encourage people that you could be a really modest person, even if you're not meeting all the exact standards and expectations of halacha. There's so many people I know out there who care about modesty and who think about it and who don't just wear anything, even though they're not necessarily halachic to the T. And, and someone else will say, well, then they're not modest. No, I don't think so. I think they're modest, but they're not necessarily halachic. On the flip side, we have people who check off all the halachic lines in the sense of all the things they think are supposed to be covered are covered, but they certainly don't exude modesty, what we like to call the hot khani look. It's just the whole the whole look that they give off is not. And, and I like to tell people like, you know, we could strive to also be modest and also be halachic. And yet I don't, I don't want to ever make it an all or nothing kind of thing. You know, if, if a student comes to me and she's like, my family spends the whole summer on the beach and until now, um, you know, go in my bikini and I'm contemplating if I should move from a bikini to a bathing suit. Both she and I know that to be on a mixed beach in a bathing suit isn't necessarily what we would call sanua or halachic. And yet is that step forward for her something significant? Would I want to invalidate that by telling her it's all or nothing? Absolutely not. So moving more to that place of complexity, which isn't in vogue today, people like things simple and black and white and all or nothing. But I think moving to that place of complexity is a huge part of this. And at the same time, I don't want to send the message that dress is not important that it's insignificant. I do want people, young men and women, to say, yes, you shouldn't be judged based on your dress, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to take responsibility for how you dress or that you don't have to be thoughtful about the decisions that you make and the implications of them. And I think that, you know, balance of how do I wanna present myself? And at the same time, I don't wanna judge others when we look at other people, we do our best not to judge others, to see the whole person. But when we have to decide, how do I want to present myself, then we should dress in the way that we want to be perceived. Because that's part of being an adult and taking responsibility is not to dress and then complain. How come people, because you get to decide how you dress. So I think that's a fine balance of encouraging 
when we look at other people and not to judge them. And at the same time for ourselves, understanding that we want to make the best decisions that we can for ourselves and, and own them and, um, and just in a way that we want other people to see us. I'm so glad that you mentioned that idea that we have to get away from this all or nothing binary yeah. way of looking at Judaism. It's something which I mention a lot. I think I mentioned it probably more on Intimate Judaism than on this podcast, but at the same time, it's really so key. And one of my own challenges has always been the fact that when I was growing up, I remember reading the idea of tovel v'sheretz biado, when you go into a mikvah, but you're still carrying something impure, you're not purified by that mikvah. And that's used by some, some very important and well-respected people as a metaphor for Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. So when you go in Yom Kippur and you want to fix almost everything, but not everything, well, that's like tovel v'sheretz biado, you're dunking, holding something impure in your hand. And on the one hand, I respect that and understand that, but as a psychological reality and in terms of the way that Jews should act nowadays, I think we have to get away from that way of thinking. Maybe the best articulation of that point I read in a book called Nine and a Half Mystics. I've quoted this repeatedly, so I apologize for those who've heard me say this all the time, but the book Nine and a Half Mystics written by a— Okay, so it's written by a Reform rabbi named Herbert Wiener, Mm -hmm. and he interviewed numerous people who were mystics, some of them religious, some not, all Jewish. One of them was the Babacher Rebbe. And he went to the Babacher Rebbe, and as a Reform rabbi, he had written certain articles, and during one of his interactions with the Babacher Rebbe, the Rebbe said to him, people think the difference between us— I don't know if he means Lubavitch or orthodoxy, but whatever. People think the difference between us and reform is that you compromise and we don't. That's not true. We also compromise, but we don't sanctify the compromise. And I thought that was just a phenomenal way of expressing this idea that there's a difference between saying, it's too hard for you not to drive on Shabbos. Okay, you're allowed to drive on Shabbos versus it's too hard for you not to drive on Shabbos. Okay, how about we take it up again in six months and see what happens then? Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing might be true here. And maybe the way to answer that question, which I'm raising now about Tovel Vesheret's Piado, is okay, there is an ideal. We can't say that, okay, because I'm compromising, because I'm not going to do everything, therefore I don't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between saying, I'm going to do my best now, and this is what I can do, and respecting myself and other people for our choices, while at the same time not pretending that just because I'm compromising right now, the mitzvah doesn't exist at all. That's at least how I deal with that particular problem. I was going to say, you know, in essence, the same thing. Um, something that I very much got from my house growing up, I, I really thank God was blessed with wonderful parents. Um, my father, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Lerner, was a rabbi in Young Israel, Great Neck, for many, many years. In a community, you know, that that was very open and very educated people and the job of inspiring people and moving them forward, even if not everyone's exactly keeping all of the halacha all the time. And I really saw, I guess, growing up some kind of, um, I don't even want to call it a balance, two values that could live together, which is integrity, real integrity to the halacha and not, not watering it down or not being honest with people uh, showing people the halacha and not apologizing for it and, and believing in it and believing that it could speak for itself. And at the same time, sensitivity. A lot of people think that integrity and sensitivity can't go together. I guess I was blessed to see that it can. You can have a lot of integrity to the halacha and also be very sensitive to where the person who is sitting in front of you is at. 
and what's the next step for them and that they're in some kind of process and some kind of journey and they may never get to the end as most of us won't but that we're moving along some kind of continuum i, I just see uh very much so in the world uh around us i guess in at least the circles that i travel um almost so much sensitivity today so much wanting to be there for students and be there for children and understand them and not offend them and not, you know, do anything that could shake their sense of self, that we're losing integrity towards um, our religious values and principles. And and I think, I mean, I recently was asked to give um, a talk in a high school here in Israel about hair covering. I was really nervous, almost as nervous as I was for this podcast, because it was a population that most of their mothers don't cover their hair. And it was in Hebrew, still not my comfort zone, even after 12 years. And, um, and thank God, but I said, you know, I'm going to try stretch myself. And afterwards, uh, and, and it was an hour and a half, and the students were very engaged and involved. And afterwards, a teacher, as she walked out, said, you know, I think they were engaged and involved, because you spoke to them with respect, and you were honest, and you were real, and you didn't try to like, water it down and people respect people that have respect for themselves and for the things that are important to them. They may not do it in the end or they may not agree, but I I think that is so huge here. And I really, I thank my parents for that um, because I, I, because I know that it's possible. I saw it as a living example of like, you know, I could sit with you and I could cry with you and I could be in your struggle and, and neither of us could say that this is halachic. And, but at the same time, uh, you know who I am and what I stand for and, and I'm not going to shy away from saying it as it is. And I, and I have to tell you that I have seen wonderful things come from this um, in all different ways, you know, even kalot, I remember a call I taught years ago who was already living with her uh, chatan. And I was thinking, should I teach her all of the harchakot? Like, what are the chances? I mean, they're already, you know, fully together now. But I said, I said to her, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you everything that the halacha has to say. Obviously, you know, don't doubt the baby with the bathwater. These are the most important things. These are other things. These are other things. But I want, I, I just want you to know, because you may hear about it or whatever, and life is long. And then a few weeks before her wedding, she called me and she's like, could you just remind me? about like the halachot of beds and how many beds, because we're in a bed store and like we decided if we are doing this, we at least want to start off doing it right. Now, I almost didn't tell her the halacha of two beds when a couple is assorted each other because they were already living together and they had one big bed. I had been in her apartment and I had seen their room. But then I'm like, who are we to decide for our students or our children what their potential is? put it out there with sensitivity in a way that's measured and balanced. And sometimes you're surprised by what people are willing and able and want to do if you give them an opportunity. I feel like I see so many parents and teachers selling their students short today. And it it makes me sad. I'd like to believe in people. I so agree with everything you just said. I think that watering down the halakha to pretend that it's something that it's not Sometimes we don't even like what the halacha says. We said, I wish it were something else, but to therefore say, therefore I'm going to make it into something else, doesn't give it enough respect. We have to respect ourselves and the halachic system enough to say what the halacha is. What the person ends up doing is between that person and God. Exactly. I'm not allowed through that door, but I will tell you what the halacha says. 
what you do with it, that really isn't up to me. And I can't judge it either. I don't know how God judges that. Exactly. Shada, we have very little time left. I want to ask one last question. We could keep going. There's so much more to talk about. If we had time, I'd ask you about weddings and all sorts of other places where Sinute <laughs> comes in. But that would take us, I think, too far afield. So just as a final question, sort of bringing the educational challenges and the challenges themselves home into a single question. How do you think schools and all of us should balance the desire for a dress code, a desire for certain standards in our communities, and the attempt to avoid resentment? We already talked about judgmentalism, but I'll throw it in there again. Mm -hmm. Trying to balance these two things at once, the education and the challenges. I think everyone would probably agree that schools, especially high schools, have a right to have rules and have a right to have a handbook, and which includes a dress code. Because people applied to the schools, they were accepted, they decided to come there, no one forced them to go there, you know, they made a decision to come to that school, they could look into the rules, and they know the rules coming in, and hopefully they know what they were signing up for. So they could choose to go somewhere else if they feel like this isn't what they want. But then it's a question of what rules to make, and how to best enforce them and also how to talk about them, which is the part that often isn't done well. So in terms of the rules themselves, I think you need clear enforceable rules that apply across the board and are equally enforced in consistent ways, which high school students will always tell you, there's the girls that get skirted every day and some girls who have equally as short skirts and they're left alone. And it's true as someone who worked in a high school, like some girls, it could be because of their, you know, their specific, uh, body or because they're rebellious in general, it, it has to be equally enforced in consistent ways that are not humiliating or embarrassing or certainly don't contribute to the shame we spoke about before that I don't think any male teacher should ever be involved. I am a big fan of what I see a bunch of schools in the New York, New Jersey area have moved into, which is that I know there are schools where they don't say anything it's like if they see a student who's violating the dress code, they send them an email that's private between the administration and them that says, you know, um, you were noticed to be violating the dress code. They don't even say in what way or how or whatever. And the student knows and the parents know that if a student gets three emails like that, after that, the parents have to come in in the morning, going to work for a meeting. And that has done wonders. Like no one is flagged in school. No one has to change in school, but they know, okay, you know, like, and, and very quickly people have come on board with that. There's a dress code. These are the rules of the school and no different than any other rules in the school. The part that I think is equally as important is the conversation around it. And when I taught in high school, we really tried to think what's appropriate for each age. So I taught this halakha to seniors and then they would say, oh, if only you taught this to us as freshmen. And I said, give me a break. Freshmen cannot handle the nuance, the sophistication, the um, sensitivity of these halachot. The reason it's so effective now in a text-based class is because you're seniors and you're thinking about life differently and you're taking responsibility and you understand both the responsibility part and the sexuality part. And we could have this conversation in an honest, mature way. But let's say in 10th grade, we already had a panel with teachers where the students could ask anything on their mind. It wasn't source-based and it was more, you know, friendly and soft. Or in ninth grade, we brought in someone to give an inspiring share to, to bring the students into the conversation also sometimes to include them in some of the dilemmas or to bring them into like, how do you think this should be enforced? 
the conversation is a big part. When it comes to our homes, I think it's very different because in homes, I mean, the great part is that you have an individual relationship. Um, you know each child, you know their needs, you know who you're dealing with. The hard part is, is that there's no buy-in in the way that there is, like they didn't sign up to be your child or to come to this. They're school. not there by choice. Yeah, they're stuck with you and you and you have them and you know, and here I want to come full circle and come back to the core values in, in my home. Um, when we try to educate, we try to keep the conversation on core values, on the values that are important to us, why they're important to us. So let's say tefillah. Tefillah is really important to us. Conversation with Hashem, communication. Talk a lot about tefillah. A core value has to have a minimum expression because otherwise, what is it? if it doesn't have any kind of way of coming into a concrete existence. So in my house, for example, with Tefillah, it was everyone has to, you know, let's say Shabbos, you have to daven before you come to the table. That's what we do in this house. We daven. Davening is important to us. Okay. Does that mean that child got up and went to Minion? Does that mean they're like, I davened, but you're like, that was two seconds long. What could they have said in two seconds? That's between them and God, as you said. But in my house, I try to keep it as core values with some basic standards that are non-negotiable, but a lot of flexibility then built in with how this child is going to express this core value in their life, which by the way, I think is something true, um, not only for children, for all of us. I think uh, I talk about this also a lot with my students that sometimes people, instead of a core value, they tie on to like an expression of a value. So if I would say a value is a connection to Midianat Yisrael, to Eretz Yisrael, but they made the value Aliyah. And now for some reason, they can't make Aliyah at the end of their Shana Ba'aris. And they're like, oh no, what does this mean? It's like, no, 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 the value is connection to Israel. You know, think about how you are going to bring that value to expression at every stage in your life. It could be visiting Israel. It could be advocating for Israel. It could be staying in touch with people in Israel. It could be following the news in Israel. And same thing to Tefillah for some people at some point may mean three Tefillah a day in a minion. And at other points it mean, but just because we go through different stages in life and challenges or easier times doesn't mean we have to let go of a core value, but the expression of that value is probably going to change over time. And to build in that flexibility from the beginning is something that I have found to be helpful. Okay, Shana, one last thing. You mentioned the Drachaha website. Can you give the web address for that? Yes, it's www.drachaha.org or womenandmitzvot.org. You can get to it either way. There's some wonderful articles there about dress and about snood and about all kinds of other interesting topics. And all the credit really goes to Ravanit Lorinovic, who uh, she conceived of the idea. I help edit and read the articles and whatever, but she conceived of the idea. And all of the um, articles then go through Rav, uh, Ezra Bick, who's one of the Raman in Yeshivat Hartzion and a real halachic authority. But what the articles try to do there also is along the lines of what I just said, lay out the whole picture, give you all the opinions, help people get a sense of the issue and find themselves in that halachic spectrum and figure out at least what's their next step in their growth process. Shayna, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that you were nervous to do this podcast. So that only emphasizes, first of all, that that's hard to believe given how incredibly articulate and wise you were throughout this conversation. 
And it also allows me just to say thank you again for being willing to do it and have this difficult, fraught conversation. It's so important that people hear what you have to say and for this to open up conversations about Sniut that too often are shut off before they ever even begin. So once again, Shana Goldberg, I thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It was really um, a sweet to be here. And I think the fact that the questions that you posed were so thought provoking and really kind of have been with me over the last week. Um, I, I really thank you even for that opportunity to sharpen for myself before we even talk about others, some of these points that I think are so important, especially in the day and age that we live in. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.